I've often quoted as saying I would rather be governed by the first 2,000 people in the Boston Telephone Directory than by the 2,000 people on the faculty of Harvard University. In this present crisis, government is not the solution to our problem. Government is the problem. They share our beliefs, our convictions, our hopes, and our dreams. These are the conservatives of the heart. They are our people. Join the best in the movement. It's Conservative Conversations with ISI. Educating for liberty since 1953. Welcome back. You're listening to Conservative Conversations with Nate Marlowe. On today's episode, we're talking with Orrin Cass, Executive Director of American Compass and author of The Once and Future Worker, A Vision for the Renewal of Work in America. Thank you for joining us today, Orrin. Well, thanks so much for having me. Oren's going to discuss with us American Compass's Guide to College for All, which is prompted by the U.S.'s somewhat unique attitude towards college as default path for millions of high school students. He'll also talk to us about conservatism more generally. But before we continue with our interview, I'd like to thank you uh, for listening to Conservative Conversations. This podcast is a production of the Intercollegiate Studies Institute. Our mission at ISI is to educate for liberty. So if you would like to help us in that mission, please rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts to help us reach more listeners like yourself. So Oren, before we get into um, the meat of the interview, we just wanted to ask you um, just what your what the books are that have inspired you most, what inspired your thinking most, whether on the subject that we'll be discuss- discussing today or uh, more generally on your approach to economics and conservatism. Sure. It's a great question. I, I guess I would point to books in two categories. One is a couple of books that came out really around the same time in 2012, coming apart by Charles Murray and um, Our Kids um, by by Robert Putnam. And, you know, what was striking about them is one was very left of center, one right of center politically, um, and yet they're almost the same book. It's, it's kind of a little awkward that they were, in, you know, presumably going through the publication process at the same time, and they tell just really parallel stories of uh, what I would call the great divergence in America, the way that outcomes... Uh, for Americans, roughly speaking, who are college educated, um, you know, who have professional jobs, um, have, have gone in one direction and, and outcomes for everybody else have gone in another. And our conventional economic statistics, I think, tend to mask that because we redistribute uh, a lot of income from one group to another because technological progress and so forth gets, you know, great new cheap stuff to everybody but but on the dimensions that I think really matter to people's well-being and, and to the health of, of the nation in the long run, it, it, it I think, draws a really clear picture of, of a serious problem that that the conventional uh, view misses. And, and so I think that was certainly important to my thinking about economics generally and, and goes to the specific point about college and, and the very strange and, I would say, um, destructive role that, that our education system is really playing um, with respect to the social fabric today. So um, those are two. And, and I guess the one other thing I'd love to just put a, a quick plug in for more broadly is like actually reading the classics of political economy. And, and I know this is something near, near and dear to ISI's heart, but you know, it's incredibly important if you if you think you're going to be talking about what Adam Smith said or what, you know, even Friedrich Hayek said to actually read the wealth of, of nations or, or the road to serfdom um, and, and to discover that it, it tends to be an awful lot more nuanced and conditional than the, the sort of absolute prescriptions that, that people take from it. And, and so I had the fortune to, back in college, major, actually be a political economy major 
and and the professors made us actually read this stuff and and I think it it gives you a much richer understanding of of the complexity of these issues of of the way that any particular analysis is really time limited i mean adam smith was really writing about the the mid 1700s in a way that just doesn't apply to a lot of today's challenges uh, and, and then I think it's really interesting just to look at more recent political economists. I mean, if, if I could recommend one very short book, um, it's called Exit, Voice, and Loyalty by, by Albert Hirschman. And Hirschman makes the fascinating point that, you know, when you are in an institution or a member of a community or even just a customer of a product and you are dissatisfied, um, you really have two choices. You can exercise your right to exit, you can leave, or you can exercise your your voice and actually try to change something from within. And he just does an extraordinary job analyzing the trade-offs between those, how they work, why they work, when people choose to use one or the other. Obviously, from the title, loyalty is a big piece of it. And I think it's just the quintessential illustration of something that conservatives inherently grasp and grapple with and market fundamentalists do not. And this goes to the school's discussion too, right? Is is the way to fix schools just to have radical school choice and say, well, if everybody can leave any school they don't like, then we'll have great schools. I understand the market logic of that, but I think there's also an awful lot to be said for making sure that people are invested in the communities that they're a part of and, and finding ways to improve them. And so that that is one particular recommendation I think has a, a tremendous amount of relevance to to America's challenges today. So on on that last point, Oren, American Compass had this great report uh, on on uh, college life in America and the way that we structure higher education. Could you just give us a summary of your recent American Compass report? And and when when compared to the rest of the developed world, how is the American college in, enrollment and how are those trends different? And what is the education landscape looking like in America from this perspective? Yeah, sure. So. You know, we call it just a guide to college for all, and and I think college for all is a pretty good description of the education model we've pursued in America in recent decades. Uh, you know, we we just quote Obama in a speech he was giving. You know, he literally asked the kids who here who here wants to go to college, and then turned to the adults and said, "I expect to see them all raising their hands." Um, and and that's that's sort of taken for granted here, uh, as of course how it's supposed to be. As a starting point and where we start the report, it's really important to recognize that's just a real outlier compared to other developed economies. If, if you look uh, throughout you know, Europe, throughout the rest of the, the Anglosphere, um, developed Asian economies, most education systems provide at, at least a, a sort of comparable non-college pathway that you know, by the time you get toward the end of high school, a third to a half of students are on. Um, and, and that means that, yes, there are opportunities to prepare for college and go on to college, but there are also, you know, enormous resources and, and effort placed into developing these pathways that are going give, to give young people practical skills and prepare them for the workforce and connect them to the workforce, which for an awful lot of people is, is going to be the most valuable option. And, and so I think step one is to just realize that there is a choice here. Um, we have made a particular choice, and and then the report tries to go through in, in somewhat excruciating detail how how bad a choice we have made. You mentioned exit voice and loyalty, which we actually have an entire panel dedicated to, uh, basically surrounding the, the the thesis of this book at our upcoming event in Dallas. So um, we have 
Nate Fisher of New Founding and Michael Gibson of 1517 Fund, and also my husband who works for 1517 Fund, which um, it, it basically just gives money to stu- students who've dropped out of college and um, allows them to start their own tech startups. And um, the, the thesis of the entire fund is to do just that. My, my husband actually dropped out of University of Pennsylvania. Um, and so his other colleague, colleagues are also dropouts. And um, the, the panel will basically grasp, uh, grapple with whether we should be subverting these institutions, um, especially colleges, or if we should be starting Hillsdales in like red states. And we actually had Dave Raboy on last week who talked a bit about how conservatives need to be building 15 Hillsdales in Texas uh, or Florida. And generally, conservatives need to build their own institutions operated by their allies. So given your findings in your report, do you think that that's a solution or do you, to just create more universities that probably won't offer the apprenticeships that you mentioned in the report um, that a lot of Americans seem to favor because they may offer a more direct um, pipeline to, um, you know, flourishing or um, because another objection to college today, at you know, just talking on the subject of schools uh, that aren't even higher education and how parents are becoming weary about what's happening uh, inside schools regarding, you know, activist school boards, et cetera. The, it seems to be that the conversation is also taking taking root in the material that's being taught, which can kind of, it doesn't talk as much about the purpose of education, um, which that's kind of a whole subject of debate for itself. So my question, I guess, is do you think that building conservatives building their institutions is a solution? Or do you think we need to reassess how we even approach education in the first place and whether that is a route to economic prosperity today for a bulk of Americans at all? Well, I think it's definitely the latter that that we really need to think about what the purpose of education is and, and how we're approaching it. Because I, you know, I do think it's it's a little easy sometimes in, in these discussions about what's wrong with college to immediately fall into a discussion of what's wrong with college for extremely high performing kids at Ivy League schools who maybe should, you know, do tech startups. And and I don't know, maybe that's a problem. But if, if we're talking about the problems for America as a whole, um, or, or at least the problems for most Americans, um, the problem is that they are not prepared for college, will not succeed in college. And even if they earn a degree from, um, you know, an institution that is is many rungs down from, from these sorts of Ivy League institutions, they're unlikely to even find a job that, that requires a degree. And so, um, you know, certainly within, within the sphere of higher education for people who, who are making use of higher education, we need higher ed reform. I, that's that's true. And how much of that we do within the existing schools versus start new ones, I, I think is a very good question. But it's it's a different question from from the one that that I'm focused on at least here, which is how do we create a system that equips the typical American to live a, a decent life, um, to you know find connection to the workforce. Um, and, and productive work, I, ideally, and it's what most people want to be able to do it in the community where they live and, and where they've grown up, um, to support a family and, and so on and so forth, and and to help support the the health of that local economy. And so, for that, you know, you might say hypothetically, and and I think we have to sort of cut the reformers some slack thirty or forty years ago, who said, "Well, gosh, let's like part of the way to do that is going to be to." get everyone ready for college and get everybody into college. You know, maybe that was a reasonable thing to try, 
Um, at this point, we need to acknowledge that it does not work, um, that you know, we have doubled per pupil spending on K-12 education over the last 50 years. We've pursued every reform people can think of in, in how they teach, um, and test scores have gone nowhere. Um, you know, the, the share of Americans who are, are prepared for college by the end of high school has remained between 35 and 40 percent for decades. And we, of course, we continue pushing more kids into college, but we, we then see this empirically in the enormous share that don't actually complete. I mean, only about half of college enrollees actually complete a program even within six years. Uh, and, and then even of those who do complete, you know, about 40% end up in jobs that, that didn't require a degree at all. So when, when you put all those things together, you end up with, with what I call the fortunate fifth, which is only about one in five students actually going smoothly from high school to college to career and everybody else falling out along the way. Now, with incredible college-focused education reform, could you improve that? Could you get that from 20% up to 30%? Maybe. We don't see any evidence of it, but sure, let's stipulate that you could. Could you get it up to 40%? Maybe in a couple of generations. But even if you did that, you'd still be left with the problem I, I was referring to initially with coming apart and, and our kids, which is that that's still not working for most people. And you're still putting all of your effort and investment and resources into the minority of the population who are essentially going to be the economic winners, um, so on top of everything else, it's regressive. And so what I think we need to do is ask, okay, what would an education system look like if we said that the core purpose was actually to equip people to, to live good lives? And, and this is something that we asked um, straight up in, in the survey we did at American Compass. We gave people a choice. We asked both parents of young adults and young adults themselves you know, given that there are some trade-offs between these things, to which extent is it more important that the education system be preparing people with the, the skills they need to build decent lives in the communities where they live uh, versus to what extent is it important to be trying to achieve, you know, achieve the, the highest level of academic performance and, and get into the best possible college. And, and by overwhelming majorities, people choose the former, which, which I think is the right answer, um, that that the purpose of public education is uh, to actually uh, prepare people in the communities where they are to to be productive members of their communities, and and that holds interestingly that holds across parties, Democrat, Independent, Republican, that holds across lower working, middle, upper class, and and so if we want to do that, then we really have to stop the way that we are investing our resources right now, spending hundreds of billions of dollars a year trying to get people through college and, and in the process, leaving most people behind. So in the question of actually making effective reforms to this system, you know, it's encouraging the, the findings that you're talking about where Americans aren't fully bought into the idea that every single kid should just be dumped into a four-year college. It seems like the barriers to actual meaningful reform in, in that area uh, are there's there's certainly the ideological one which we've talked about a little bit right where it seems like the predominant opinion if the sort of technocratic um, education policymaker class is that we should be trying to make it as easy as possible for as many people as possible to go to college um, but there's also the sort of institutional question which is that the college bureaucracy is enormously powerful uh, they have a, a vested interest in 
bringing as many clients, students, right, um, into their their system as possible. And like any sort of captured bureaucracy, the, the the departments that oversee that are also often respondent to those interests. How do you, I mean, in terms of like dismantling the power of American higher education as it exists today, which to me, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, I think that's a prerequisite to meaningful reform. Uh, how do we go about doing that in a way where we actually get to the the vision of education that American Compass is advancing and that, that I think most conservatives and, and right-minded Americans should support? Well, this is actually one of the areas in in, in American public policy where I'm most optimistic. And and the reason for that is is in part, as a little bit we were just saying, I, I think there's actually fairly widespread agreement on, on what we should be doing. Um, you know, it, it's not a divisive issue, frankly, the way so many are. Uh, and, and there's also a very clear lever to pull. I mean, if you're talking about, you know, the decline of religiosity or the decline of the family, or there, there are plenty of of issues in America where you say, okay, but but what exactly would policymakers do about that? Um, when it comes to this education issue, it's it's quite obvious. We have hundreds of billions of dollars that we spend on higher education, uh, and that is not how we should spend it. And the nice thing about putting those two together is, if you have a political consensus and a lever to pull, um, you can actually get something done. Now. You're certainly right. You obviously have entrenched special interests and, and you know, higher education, which, which I think we should properly call big ed, is, you know, one of the most powerful and lobbying groups. I mean, just surely by what they spend on lobbying um, is, is, you know, one of the most p- powerful political forces in Washington. But in my experience, there's, there's actually a, a simpler problem, which is that there's a political perception that you can't say people shouldn't go to college. And, you know, in my experience talking to policymakers, what what you find is first they'll worry, well, okay, you know, sure, maybe this data is right, but uh, if if we actually were to advocate for an alternative, which is going to look more like a, a tracking style system where by the time you're in high school, you might be on a college track or a non-college track, you know, we're going to get accused of, you know, at a minimum being an elitist, right? There's the like, well, didn't you go to college, um, come back? Or there's the, um, well, you know, that you're just now depriving people of opportunity or at the extreme, like, well, you just, you know, you hate minorities or something, right? Is is the attack you're going to get. And so there's one thing to be said about like, well, that's just not true. Like even just conceptually, the people who are hurt, by only having one track that's called the college track are the people that the college track doesn't work for. So saying, hey, we should probably have some other options too, um, it turns out is quite popular with exactly the groups who, who you worry you might offend. I mean, when, when, we, when we test these kinds of policy ideas, it's the, the more insulated college-educated elite who kind of get nervous about it, and it's everybody else who says like, yes, obviously that, <laughs> that makes more sense. Um, and then there's still a second concern, which is, okay, maybe I can say in the abstract, we can do this, but you still can't tell people that their own kids shouldn't go to college. Like that, that's still what everyone wants for their kid. And it turns out that that is actually an equally bubbled and incorrect assumption. And that was one of, maybe that was the most encouraging thing, um, from, from the survey that we did. And, and one of the things I was somewhat surprised by actually in the results 
is not only do you get just overwhelming support for the idea of tracking in the abstract, I mean, by like 10 to one margins, but when you then ask people in much more personal terms, thinking about your yourself for a young adult or thinking about your own child for a parent, what option would you prefer be offered to, to them or to you after high school, three-year apprenticeship leading to a good job, uh, or free tuition at any college you can get into, the three-year apprenticeship is more popular. And the only, you know, now kids who are going to and successfully completing college, unsurprisingly, like the free college idea. Um, but maybe what I found most surprising, even among parents whose kids had successfully completed college, 40% of them said they would have preferred the, <laughs> the three-year apprenticeship option for their kid. Um, and so, again, none of this is to say college is bad and we should shut down all the colleges, right? That's not the point. There are plenty of people for whom college makes sense. Um, but the idea that that should just be the uniform model for everybody is just not something that anybody believes. And, and I think at this point, it's because of personal experience. There's nobody at this point who hasn't, thinking about their own friends, their kids, you know, hasn't seen that this just does not work for a lot of people. And sorry, just one more survey result. You know, we just asked people like, look, which you do you agree that, you know, everyone can succeed in college with the right support or only some people are, can succeed in college? And again, significant majority say, no, only some people are equipped to succeed in college. Um, and and so I think there's still work to be done in in making sure that the the political leaders understand you know, this is this is just a slam dunk winner. Not only is it substantively correct, it is what people actually want <laughs> and believe. And if you can get over that hump, then I think there's tremendous opportunity for for really significant reform. On the note of um, the the findings that showed that most Americans would prefer a three year apprenticeship after high school over free college, I'm curious how, especially we were talking about kind of these entrenched special interests earlier, how you think we'd be able to apply like an apprentice, if, if there's any, you know, kind of idea in mind or model you think of, or maybe other developed countries are doing this and the U.S. just hasn't followed the lead um, of how we can apply apprenticeship models when pushing high schoolers through the college pipeline. It seems to be our country's only default setting. And college, you know, colleges obviously are, um, I've heard them described as hedge funds before. Um, they're clearly special interest groups trying to get as many customers as possible. So, as far as um, a model for that, how do you think we'd be able to replace the current system um, with a model that perhaps promotes apprenticeships um, much more? Since it seems like there is there is a lot of interest among Americans, um, parents, whether and, and students as well, perhaps. Yeah, it's a great question, and and I think there are a few things to say about it broadly, and and then I'll give some specific examples. You know, one thing I think is really important to remember broadly when we talk about apprenticeships or non-college pathways is if you look at where we do have career and technical education in America and where, where people are on vocational pathways, you know, we have in our heads that you're talking about like, you know, construction trades or auto mechanics or something like that. And sure, that that exists. But in fact, the, the leading fields are business and healthcare. Um, if, if you think about just jobs in our economy and, you know, things people need to do, 
Um, most of them are not things that you're going to learn about in, in a college classroom necessarily. So whether you're thinking about all of the functions in your local hospital um, besides, you know, the, the doctors, essentially, um, there are ways to prepare people for those jobs that look nothing like the traditional, okay, spend four years in high school, you know, preparing to get the best possible SAT score and then go spend four years in college and then, you know, undergrad, et cetera. That's just not the right pathway. And the same goes for business, whether you're thinking about, um, you know, sales and, and marketing functions, or you're thinking about, you know, back office, accounting, HR, whatever it is. Again, are, are there, you know, research and development positions or, and specific things that require certain types of academic training? Sure. But, but most of it doesn't really. And so I, I think it's really important to have in our heads, not, you know, shop class, although again, there are plenty of people for whom shop class is, is exactly the right thing. Um, but but more to start from the end point and think about all the people out there in the world doing jobs and was was spending four years on a college campus really the thing they should have been doing between the ages of 18 and 22. So, so when we say apprenticeship, it can take all sorts of forms. There are some that are relatively more in the classroom learning. There's some that are relatively more on the job learning. But the real key, and, and this is what you see in, in other systems for the most part, is you have to have engagement with employers. Um, you actually have to have jobs out there that people are looking at and learning how to do, and you have to have opportunities to actually then be doing those jobs. So I, I think a huge part of the transition, and, and this is the third sort of general point, is that it's it's a transition, right? You don't just replace the system with a new one. But the, the transition is one of, of, over time, taking funding that we currently spend trying to in, get college enrollment as high as possible and make the colleges into these, you know, amusement parks, essentially, um, and start spending less money on that and more money supporting other pathways. Give more funding to high schools to actually create these kinds of opportunities. Because among other things, they tend to be more expensive than just sitting someone in a class and reading Shakespeare to them. You need, you, you need more facilities. You need teachers with more particular expertise. So you actually have to make a real investment there. And then you have to get employers involved and make it worth their while, which means just like we're happy to be sending, you know, tens of thousand dollars per student per year to a college campus to teach them I'm not sure what, I'm not sure why we do that, but we're not willing to send comparable funds to an employer if they're going to be the one who take on the student and teach them what they need to know. And so over time, if if we take a lot of the money, and I, I would say, you know, let's at least shoot for essentially equalizing it. So instead, instead of spending 200 plus billion on higher ed and essentially nothing on other college pathways, over 10 years, let's move $100 billion out of higher ed, public support for higher ed, and into... Um, support for these other pathways. And I think you could do that. And I think you would also create a virtuous cycle where as those pathways um, become desirable, become validated, generate people with good outcomes, they will also therefore become something that more people want to do. And as more people do them and then move into the world and become successful, all of a sudden, and, and this is what you see in countries like Germany, you're going to find the higher ranks of, of a company and, and the executives and board members who themselves came through these pathways and understand the value of them. 
And so that's the virtuous cycle we could we could ultimately be on and, and we need to be pursuing instead of this vicious cycle we're on right now where college is the only thing that counts. Ever more people try to go to college. And for the people who it does not work for and is not appropriate for, they end up further behind than ever. So pivoting a little here, I mean, we're talking a lot about what I think it's fair to characterize as some of the problems with the priorities and the consensus in policymaking circles. And uh, it's a bipartisan product uh, problem to an extent. Um, you are someone, your, your work at American Compass is, uh, has been in a lot of important ways challenging, particularly on the right, um, the, the sort of economic priorities and consensus of policymakers. Um, can, I'd love to just hear you talk a little bit about your, your work in the context of conservatism today. You know, what, what was the right of center think tank level uh, economic consensus like before you entered the scene? Um, and where are you trying to take it? Uh, and what I'd love to hear about that in the context both of overarching goals and of the sort of specific projects that you're interested in that you think are a divergence, a welcome divergence um, from the, the economic consensus of conservatism for the last few decades at least. Yeah, sure. I, I think maybe the place to start is with what I've perceived to kind of be the, the central metaphor of economic thinking and policymaking in recent decades which is this economic pie, um, which is the idea that, you know, the economy is basically this big pie of stuff that we get to consume. And the goal is to make the pie as big as possible and then to make sure that everybody gets lots of pie and like, and who doesn't like pie, right? Like this is what, what else could there be to talk about? Um, and so everyone really, and, and this goes for Democrats and Republicans to a large extent sort of agreed that, Goal number one is maximize economic growth so that the pie is as big as possible. And we, and we might fight about what exactly is the right way to do that. And then goal number two is to slice up the pie in such a way that we're happy with how much pie everybody has. And you know, we might sort of fight about how exactly to do that. But at the end of the day, we're defining success by eating a lot of pie. And, you know, I, I'm not some kind of anti-growth, you know, boo consumers, like let's all live in huts in the woods. I, I like pie too. But the reality is that that way of thinking is just very blinkered. And it, it really ignores a lot of, I would say maybe even most of what matters to people and, and, and the quality of their lives and, and especially the, the sort of sustainability and, and trajectory of the economy. Because what that analysis does is it says, okay, how do we get the pie as big as possible today? Um, but it, it doesn't it doesn't really consider, okay, but is is what we're doing to achieve that actually laying the groundwork for long run success or actually sort of eroding our foundations? Um, and and it seems to me that an awful lot of what we pursued, you know, whether it was in terms of globalization, whether it was in terms of financialization, um, our approach to sort of safety nets and transfer payments, our, our approach to education, it, it all just sort of presumed that whatever we do that, that generates the highest GDP, GDP growth number next year is, is the best thing for the country. And I think what we've discovered is that that's just not true, um, that, that you can serve everybody a lot of pie, even as you are really weakening 
um, the actual foundations that we rely on, the actual capacity of families and communities to raise a next generation that's going to be able to achieve the same and, and ideally more. And so, you know, the, the work that we do at American Compass, the, the mission statement is uh, to, to restore an economic consensus that emphasizes the importance of family, community, and industry to the nation's liberty and prosperity. And, you know, every word there was chosen very carefully, but to, to highlight a few, you know, it, it is a question of restoring an economic consensus. I mean, the American economic tradition is not this obsession with cheap stuff from China. Like, it's just not. It's the, you know, it is, it's, it's the tradition of, of the founding generation that actually worked very hard to build up barriers against the British in particular to develop domestic industry and to develop infrastructure and, um, you know, to, to do the initial development of public education, which I can assure you was not about test scores and, and college admissions. It was about preparing a citizenry for democratic Republican government. And so I think remembering that that's what we're actually after is incredibly important. Remembering that, that to do that, we can't just think of people as these sort of floating atoms that, you know, need to maximize their happiness from day to day, but that actually having the, the institutional framework that, that's going to allow families and communities to flourish, that's going to ensure that um, we actually have robust industry uh, is, is sort of central to that. Uh, and, and then ultimately remembering that, you know, yes, the nation's liberty and prosperity is what we're after. But liberty and prosperity and buying lots of cheap stuff are not the same thing. Um, so, you know, I, I think, first of all, I like to think that that's all correct. And second, I think it's it's really important to underscore the way that it's sort of fundamentally very conservative in, in a small c conservative way. And that to the extent that it sounds very different from what the right of center in America has been saying in recent decades really just underscores the extent to which what, what we have decided to call conservative in America isn't really conservative at all. It's been basically libertarian or market fundamentalist. Uh, and, and that lack of a conservative impulse in American politics and policymaking, I think, has been at, at the heart of a lot of what has gone wrong. So that all seems exactly right to me. And it's it's sort of odd to me that at least at the abstract level, it's, it's controversial in conservative circles to say that a robust conservative economics should be organized around the goods that conservatives traditionally have recognized are good, like the family, like communities, like local civic ties. And of course, as you pointed out, you know, the founders didn't talk about free markets, right? The, the, that wasn't, they had a much more rich, I think, vision of politics than um, certainly some of our friends on the sort of libertarian end of the, of the conservative spectrum. Um, but one of the other basic conservative insights uh, that I think is true is that the the objections to sort of an overweening bureaucratic government aren't just made on abstract grounds of the principle of limited government in the abstract. It's that overbearing government crowds out the mediating institutions and the civic ties and the crucially important parts of civil society that you, Orrin, are talking about wanting um, to flourish. So, I mean, and, and maybe this gets down to the sort of concrete questions of actual policy, but how is American Compass thinking about approaching the question of trying to move away from market fundamentalism in a way that doesn't also turn into this kind of statism 
which is equally, if not more destructive to local community, civic ties, patriotism, love of family, et cetera, um, as a kind of the kind of emaciated neoliberalism that we're also trying to fight. Sure. Well, I mean, not to be pedantic, but the the way you frame the question is 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 question begging because you 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 said overbearing government does all of these things, um, and so yes, I would stipulate that overbearing government is overbearing. <laughs> what we have to figure out is is what kind of government is or or is not overbearing, because you know inherently. The idea of having government, obviously, is is something I think most people are on board with. And and then when you start kind of going through it, it turns out there's a lot of things, you know, people are on board with government doing. And, and this is where I think education is, again, a, like a perfect example. I mean, yeah, you can find the people who are like, no, we just, education is not the role of the government. Um but that's that's pretty rare. You don't you don't find a whole lot of people who say like we just shouldn't have public education. You'll find people would say, well, instead of public education, we should just give everybody a voucher uh, and and just let them go buy whatever education they want. Um, but it's it's interesting, I think, to to think about the ways that that's actually then in tension with um, our interest in actually having you know community institutions, for instance. Um, and so, you know, if, if, if we want to have strong communal institutions, we do need to have coordination mechanisms, for instance. Uh, and so, you know, government is not the only coordination mechanism by any means, but it's certainly one that provides um, a, a good opportunity for a coordination mechanism. And so I think the way that conservatives need to approach the question is first to ask, and, and I think you said this well, Nate, you know, okay, like, well, what are the ends here? What are we actually trying to accomplish? And then what are the places where government action, meaning essentially publicly, man, you know, mandated public coordination um, helps to advance those? And I think specifically when you're talking about the way our markets operate, you you start to realize pretty quickly that actually you you need a lot of rules in a well-functioning market. And, and this is, you know, exactly why I, I mentioned back at the beginning, like you have to actually go back and like read Adam Smith or I'm, I'm fascinated at the moment by um, David Ricardo, who's the, you know, originator of comparative advantage and is sort of always cited just for this idea that, well, obviously trade makes both countries better off. Um, you actually go read David Ricardo and literally on the same page where he's explaining his theory of comparative advantage, he says, now, of course, if the capitalists in England could just go and put all of their money into Portugal, uh, then what I'm saying here wouldn't work. Fortunately, capitalists in one country don't move all their money to another country because they don't want to and because they're loyal to their own country and et cetera. And I hope that never changes. Um, <laughs> because if you... <laughs> If you have a market where capital feels no allegiance to a particular country, uh, then a lot of the great things that you're expecting markets to deliver for your country, they won't necessarily deliver. Uh, and, and these sort of fantasies we've built of, of what a market absent any constraints would generate is not what the actual theorists that were citing for that proposition thought 
In fact, it's not what any useful theorists think. Um, and so when we're talking about what rules we want to put in place to have well-functioning markets, I think we have to acknowledge that well-functioning markets require rules. And um, it is absolutely the business of policymakers and government to um, figure out uh, and impose rules that are going to help markets deliver the kinds of outcomes that we want. Because it, it's not going to be perfect. There are all sorts of problems that, that we could recite, and, and that's fine. But doing nothing sure ain't perfect either. And, and we're going to have to do better than that. So... Oren, unfortunately, we're running out of time, but before we wrap up our episode, we want to ask you the question that we ask all of our guests, which is, and you probably answered this and you know, a, a few other questions that we previously asked you, but to uh, kind of the cherry to on top of our episode, um, what, it, what you believe conservatism is and how you would define it. I believe conservatism is and how I would define it. Well, I guess it ultimately, in my mind, conservatism is an approach to thinking about public issues in particular that recognizes the centrality of uh, institutions to outcomes and that therefore recognizes that what already exists has value and doesn't mean it's perfect, might mean you want to change it, but uh, that you're starting from what you have and that it's probably there for a reason and you should probably be careful in what you do with it. Uh, but then also recognizes in evaluating effects that the effects you might think you see on particular individuals at particular points in time aren't the only effects that matter because the way that the institutions evolve is ultimately going to have the greatest effect uh, on the world as individuals experience it. And so um, evaluating welfare in, in those terms, evaluating policy options in those terms, um, and and evaluating our, our obligations as as citizens in those terms um, is is really crucial to to having a, a functional society. Great. Well, thanks, Oren. Um, if people are interested in seeing more of your work or following you, where can they find you? Uh, AmericanCompass.org has pretty much everything we've just been talking about. And Oren underscore Cass on Twitter has frequent updates as, as, as they come out. Great. Well, thanks again for joining us, Oren. Yeah, this was great. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Conservative Conversations with ISI. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please feel free to head over to isi.org slash resources to see all that we offer our members, including the Intercollegiate Review, Select Modern Age Articles, ISI Books, and of course, this podcast. Thanks again for listening. Don't forget to rate and review, and we will see you next time on Conservative Conversations with ISI.